Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Secret Library Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Donahue, and ever since I was little, I've been obsessed with books. So I started this show to interview authors and those behind the book so that we can learn not just why they mean something to us, but where they come from. We are back with the Secret Library podcast, and I'm super pumped today to have Ruth Bernstein on the show because we worked at BookSeek together, and because I wanted to talk about another aspect of books, which is one that we all kind of take for granted and think, oh, it's just always been there, and that's the library. And I knew Ruth had to come on because she grew up attending public libraries in the 70s and 80s in Tucson, Arizona. Her parents had a home library heavy with classic fiction, poetry, theater, and political history titles. She worked in two strongly independent bookstores, Explore Bookstores, uh, Booksellers in Aspen, and BookSoup in West Hollywood, California with me. And at the same time, she was volunteering for local public libraries in Aspen and Los Angeles. So when she went to Pitzer to study anthropology uh, in Claremont, California, she worked on a thesis about libraries, which is called The Idea of the Public Library in the United States. Why is it important? And she got her thesis, sorry, she got her master's in 2014 in social work, and she now works for a privately funded charity. So Ruth, thank you so much for coming. I want to say right from the beginning that we're going to have a hot link in the show notes to Ruth's thesis. Because when you think academic thesis, you think something that's going to be really inaccessible. But I have to say, I um, I dove back in again this morning. And the thing, if you're a book lover, this thing reads like like a hot novel. I don't know. I think you might need to make this into a book. <laughs> that's wonderful news. Thank you for that compliment. It was a pleasure to work on. And ultimately, the library is such a deep subject that it became more complicated by the day. But <laughs> I had these great advisors who kept telling me, you know, keep digging in. You can't just say in an anthropologic thesis that the library is about democracy. You have to define and show that democracy changes over time and the fact that the library isn't always free and open to everybody and that there is control with the material that's included there. So to make it more complex, a little bit crashed into the net of my mythology of the public library being the place that I knew and loved, felt safe in, and it opened up a world for me just in the same way I feel that it did for you and probably most of the people who listen. Absolutely. I mean, I think one thing to note is that the thesis was written in 2011, and I think that the issues that you explore in the thesis about kind of the tension between 
the library as access to information, which you talked about is important to democracy, but also the library as a physical place. I think that tension in some ways has only gotten more poignant since 2011 because we do have this concept of like, I read a lot of books from the library through Overdrive on my Kindle, but I also check out physical books. And that's sort of, I would say 50-50 in terms of how I experience the library. So I think the concept of the library is both a conduit to information as well as a physical building you can go into. And I think that was one of the things I loved about your thesis and what you wanted to talk about today is, is sort of how do people experience the library as a building that they can go into and how do people experience the library as like an overarching concept that is in some ways, less related to books than it was before. Right. So there's two main things that pop out. And the first thing, when I'm thinking back to five years ago, is that libraries were changing into something that they had probably always been, which is a place for community. So that doesn't really appear to have left. But with more people using laptops and people needing free internet access, it changed the architecture of the library. So Silver Lake in, in Los Angeles had a brand new library. It's the, I think this, I could be wrong, but I think it's the 70th branch. And it opened right around the time I was writing this. And sure enough, I took a, a spin around to see what it was like. And it, the first thing that, that struck me was that the aisles seemed so much narrower and really hard for two people to walk by each other. So that's a pretty big change. And so I mentioned that to one of my very and intelligent professors, and she said, get back there with a measuring tape. Right <laughs> you have to, you have to, if you can quantify something in a highly qualified style of writing, if you can pepper it with real facts, then you're going to actually show that something is changing. So sure enough, there is a differential of three and a half inches between the Silver Lake Library aisles and all of the other ones that they had done field research, so it was 36 and a half inches to 40 inches. So these things are starting to change, and of course we'll be able to test how much more this is happening as more libraries are built, but certainly anybody that spent time in a library the way I did in the 70s and 80s when it was all books and seeing what's happening now is an extraordinary difference with how the space is used and managed. And then... I mean, have you experienced that? You Have you been to Silver Lake Library more than when it started and more since then? Oh, yeah. That was my main branch at my old apartment. Because that was, you know, you kind of, as you move around Los Angeles or any other city, you go to the branch that's closest to you. And Silver Lake is definitely the most space aid of any of the branches. Like, you can check. It was the first time I ever saw a self-checkout where you could go. I would reserve books online. They would tell me, they'd send me an email, your book's here. I would go and pick it up, and then I would, you know, you could go up to a station, swipe your little library card over the the little swiper and the barcode, and then just check out, and you'd never have to talk to anybody, which... yeah. It had never, I mean, on the one hand, I mean, I'm kind of an introvert, so I didn't mind that, but I noticed that now that I've moved to where I'm going to the Los Feliz branch... I have to wait in line now, and I have to interact with a person every time I check out. And there is something, <laughs> you know, which is, I mean, I like the librarian staff, actually, it's at Los Feliz a lot, but it's very different. Silver Lake was definitely showcasing technology and the ability to have almost a completely autonomous library experience versus Los Feliz feels a little grungier, and you're a little more like, I'm in the community when you're at that library. Because it's That's annoying. right. 
that's exactly right. There was this great quote uh, that I used in the thesis that uh, one of the former Boston library presidents, and that was the initial, the very first public library was considered to be in Boston in the mid-1800s, but he said that the people, even if somebody wants a book, and the only another person will only read it 50 years later, that book is vitally important to, quote, document a community. So that was something that was also on the cusp of changing in the current era because those books are not saved in the same way. That is a very, very specific directive that could happen, but most of the time, as I showed, it's absolutely not happening, and a lot of books that aren't in current circulation are, are uh, thrown away or sold or donated somewhere else, but most of the time actually tossed. Yeah, one thing that I was really struck by in the thesis was the idea of this guerrilla librarianship and that the story of these librarians yeah. who wanted to preserve the books going around with their little date stamps and making it look like books had been checked out more regularly than they had been so that they wouldn't get culled or gotten rid of, which is so amazing to me as like a form of book activism. Right. That is one of my very favorite parts because the idea, this is back to the idea of people and agency. So if you're lucky enough to be a kid or an adult in a public library in which you have a librarian like that who is protecting the things that aren't as popular, you're a lucky person. And if you're not, you never knew that you missed it. And that's a well, what do you think about the concept in terms of, you know, physical space and books? I'm thinking about when, you know, the Boston Library, which is one of the most beautiful libraries ever. I got actually really mad at my mom. I was like, why are you not in here all the time when she was in Boston? I was like, I'd be in here every day. It's so beautiful. But when that quote was, when he was writing about, you know, even if you don't read a book for 50 years, it's still valid. I'm thinking about the number of books that came out a year at that time versus the number of books that are published a year nowadays. And I think, how do we reconcile how many books come out, which is like a fire hose of books compared to then? How do we decide which books are the ones that people are going to want in 50 years and which ones are just useful for now, but maybe not as important? Yeah, that's a good point. Sometimes those antiquarian charmers, like the book on <laughs> specific types of orchids or a type of applique style or something like a, a way to learn about something that we consider old-fashioned, those still have value because they're you know, the, the typography used or, or other things. But so of the pen of what's available today, you're right, it's extraordinary. So there's still a lot of human interaction in creating uh, and ultimately archiving a library. And that's kind of what I think is so precious and I've mentioned this to you before, and also so bittersweet about being in a library because the actual physical books were created for a purpose, <laughs> but then they're also sort of symbolically a little collection. So they're both an abstract idea and a very physical thing. So I always felt like a library should be kept as is, even if it's like my home library that I grew up with in my parents' house, I can't imagine any of those books broken up. But ultimately, they'll have to be. The books will live far longer than we will. Exactly. I think that's um, that's something to me, too, because 
it makes me think about like when I was studying photography, this whole tension about using film versus shooting digitally and how when I was using like a medium format camera and I only had 10 exposures per roll, I had to really think about what do I want to get out of this role? And lots of people now say, I'm so glad that I can take digital photos with my phone, which is, you know, what I do most of the time now. You know, I don't have to worry about messing up and I can just keep trying, which is a great method of learning. But I think as we've had sort of a democratic lowering the barrier of entry to publishing books and that people are publishing books, you know, online and they're doing digital books, which is great. And that doesn't really take up room in the library in the same way. But there's just so many more books out there. And in some cases, that gives us access to something wonderful that we wouldn't have had access to before. But it's just the sheer volume of information, I think, is so much more work to get through. And I don't know. It's just a quandary that I think about. Well, there's an interesting parallel when you think about space. So the library of my father and mother in their public libraries or their college libraries, if they needed to look up a word, they had, or of course, to read an important document or something, they actually had to go to the library. And one, even if you love it, that's still a chore if you have other plans. And so therefore, the idea is that the knowledge that was secured in that moment stayed put because it's ultimately more precious because you would have to trade more time in the future if you forgot the meaning or, or needed to cite something. So today, of course, and everybody that I know is doing this, if I forget a definition or I need to look up a document or a book, certainly it's um, a few sentences away in a, a quick search. So the space actually is changed in kind of... I would. Maybe it's a stretch, but it does strike me as very similar to what you're describing with photography. If I know I have 24 exposures, my whole attitude about what's happening around me has changed, especially if it's an important, almost journalistic moment. Whereas today, I essentially just hit, I just keep my button exposed or push down, and then I'll choose later. It's a totally different, different uh, arrangement in your own brain to produce an image or a piece of knowledge, we actually have to travel through time and space to get it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think about also how this has changed in some ways how regional our knowledge is. Like, if you think about it, if somebody had to go to the library to look up information, then they're limited by what's available in that library. And so if you're going to library in small town versus, I don't know, the New York Public Library or the Boston Public Library that has much more available, that's sort of like going to define your mental space. And I think about the World Book Encyclopedia that we had, I can think of them, you know, on the shelf, it was almost like, if you don't know something about the world and you want to find out, I'd go look it up in the encyclopedia. And if it wasn't in the (laughs) encyclopedia, it might have well, as well have not been real. Like, oh, (laughs) this isn't a thing because it's not in the encyclopedia. But now we have so much more, like a wider landscape, which is much more contained within devices than within a uh, physical building. How does that change the role of the building? That is very true if you're in a well-funded area. But in rural areas, all over um, south and and then some other spots, if you don't have a computer and you need to use the internet, imagine, like, if there's 10 stations and they're fully booked for an entire day and you only have one day to accomplish something, now that's a very real problem, Wi-Fi and then also just the, the actual availability of the internet. 
And I was only able to touch on that briefly in the thesis because we were all still kind of trying to figure out how that was all going to play out. That is certainly an area for more academic uh, discovery because we are counting out people from what we define the library as, which is a place for free information. So is this purely technological problem because the areas are so far apart, or is this a public policy, public spending issue? We are not saying that people in poverty deserve to have all of the same resources. That sounds like what we're saying, because we're not making anything past state or county funds for those things to happen, although some of those things could be changing soon. But uh, this is another thing that I was able to touch briefly on in the thesis is about how social workers were starting to get placed in libraries to help people with basic information that they could find online or certainly in books. And that actually has exploded since 2011. Really? So That's fabulous. awesome. Yeah. So there's uh, most large cities now are addressing issues of uh, social justice through trying to help people who don't have access to things like food stamp applications that are very quickly and easily and efficiently done online if you happen to have access and you're organized. And so librarians were stretching into that role beautifully, but now other people are becoming employed by public libraries um, in pretty significant numbers. I mean, not significant. There's not hundreds of social workers in libraries across the U.S. from my research, but since 2011, it's in San Francisco, Chicago, Philadelphia, Baltimore. There's people coupling with publicly funded programs, such as people trying to help homelessness and create more opportunities for folks who are severely, severely underserved. And so the next five to ten years is going to be an extraordinary time from what I can tell as far as how people get served, how people get information, much past pleasure reading, which you and I can talk about forever. Yes. Really finding out more information about how to be healthy and how to succeed and how to succeed, meaning like how to stay healthy and have food, things like food stamps, such a, such an easy application, huge hurdle, huge problem for a lot of people. And libraries are filling that role. Amazing. And I want to step back too to, to in terms of like basic needs being met by the library because you volunteered for a literacy project that happened. So that's going even down to the most basic level of like being able to access the information because you're able to read in the first place. So... I'm curious about that experience, which I've heard we talked about a little bit, but I want to know more about what that was like and then how those yep. programs worked. As a volunteer for the literacy program in Los Angeles Public Library, I was so just uh, moved by the way that they taught us, which was to give us the Cyrillic alphabet and to explain, this is how somebody who is illiterate looks at an alphabet who don't have an association with these shapes. Um, until you memorize them. And it's very, very um, humbling to think of how hard that would be to ask for help uh, and how problematic it would be not to give it to read. So we learned that way, and it was, it was very interesting. And I got matched with, with the person, and I quickly realized, and this is one of the reasons why I wrote the thesis, I quickly realized that the, this person sitting across from me was highly literate, she just didn't speak English. So I started digging in a little more and found out that an enormous swath of the program, certainly everyone that I talked to, had a person who was literate but was trying to learn English. 
So that got me down the path of what it means to have a publicly funded institution providing these great classes. But we're not calling them what, what they are. There weren't concurrent classes at that time for people in English. So the workbooks we were using were completely ineffective. They were, because somebody who's literate, trying to teach them in a different language what a word was, is completely exhausting, <laughs> time-consuming. And the example I can think of is blah. So the woman that I was tutoring, very bright, she had a college degree, she was from um, Mexico, sitting across from somebody trying to explain the concept of blob is like one of the most just abstract concepts, and drawing it's not going to help. Oh, and God. We just look, yeah, luckily we laughed a lot. So <laughs> we would, <laughs> or there'd be other things, uh, compound words. So I remember shortstop and uh, frostbite. These were all, this could take 15 minutes to get a frostbite across, even what it is, what the two words are separate, where you would get such a thing. <laughs> it's just incredible. It struck me at that moment, this is a good place to dive in and think about where our funding goes. So I can't prove this, and I didn't try because my thesis took a different direction, but what it felt like to me was we don't want to tell everybody that this public institution is using our funds to help people learn English, which is exactly what we are trying to do every day. But it was called the Adult Literacy Program. Wow. And so I... Yeah, I was, I mean, we had different workbooks, and we had, if they specifically hired bilingual or bilingual people, this program would have been more successful. But my Spanish is, is not strong. I understand vocabulary, but getting through a hour-long session my pupil was it really just a more just like a conversational exchange. It didn't really feel like I was really helping her that much. But if I had had an illiterate person in front of me, we could have just worked through the workbooks together and it would have been fine. So that really got me thinking about how important it is to have public funding match what actually the need is and how political that can be. Oh, yeah, I'm sure the difference of... <clears throat> I mean, I'm sure there's something about what people are willing to pay for and people are willing to pay. Like, if someone can't read, I'm willing for my taxes to go and help that. But... but Am I going to help somebody who doesn't speak my language? I mean, that's a totally different population that's willing to say, yes, of course those people need help also. Right. So that's, and I, I imagine that's absolutely still happening across the United States. So we, we think about, well, what do you do when you come to a new country and you're, just like any of us that would travel, it's very humbling to not be able to say what you mean, especially if you're capable of abstract thought or you have a great word that you can't use it's very frustrating and it kind of slows down time a little bit but we don't have very strong programs for that and we should and the public library seems like the perfect place there's you know in a city like los angeles they're a bus ride away they're a short walk away and we're already in place with lots of employees and it just seems like the perfect spot. And it could it could be happening more today, and I just don't know about it. Uh, but certainly it shocked me that that's the way we were using my time and the funding to create all those workbooks, which were very extensive. There were probably 10 volumes. 
seed work for each one, but they were essentially uh, unusable. So I started just reading, co-reading with my students. So she'd read a paragraph of a book, and I'd read a paragraph, and it took months. But one of them was The Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> great book to read together. <laughs> and uh, it was it was great. It was incredible. And it was really cool to hear what she said about that book. And just incredible experience. Slowing it down to that degree taught me so much more about that writer's take. Just his style. I realized how extraordinary it was because my style is to read things really quickly. But yes, I had a great experience co-reading over literally months once a week that entire novel with with the person learning English. Great experience. Well, I have two questions. I mean, one is a comment, one is a question. But I think it's interesting, like, the idea of the library, I think everybody agrees, and as you said in the thesis, is that it's an access to information. It's something that's available for everyone. It's, you know, it's a, it's a democracy of information. And, yes, if the institution is available and it's idea ideology is to help people have access to information it does make sense that it would be not just literacy but fluency in the language is something that they would offer um and i'm wondering right. did you know that you wanted to go on to study social work when you started this thesis or and if if not did this kind of up the urgency or drive your desire to to work in that field uh, it did not. I always held the concept of social work and the social workers that I knew in very high regard. But at that time, I was pretty certain that I would continue on with a, a doctorate in anthropology. And the roadblock was more logistical. Because if you're going to do that, you should study with the person that inspires you the most. And I really like this lady at the University of Chicago um, Seth Lowe, who is an expert in how anthropology should and could be applied to modern American life, because that was another thing I battled with my thesis. Most of, a lot, my classmates were really writing on um, other things that uh, things happening in other countries, historical objects, and archaeological things. Where I got the question fairly consistently: How is a thesis on the public library anthropology. And so it's really an incredible thing because it is, if somebody, if we went to another country in 1900, somebody went to sub-Saharan Africa and found a group of people who had pooled their money together so that they could all have collective information, we would think it was extraordinary, but that's exactly what we're doing today. So, um, so once you write a thesis like that at a place like a place is so rigorous, you know, I really owe it to yourself to keep going in the same vein. And I made the decision that I wasn't willing to relocate to another city at this time in my life. Um, and then I started interviewing friends who are social workers, and one who's a teacher who has a social worker in her office, and started thinking about how social work has this great, slightly anthropological quality, which is you must be able to describe must be able to describe what you're seeing, what you're interviewing, what the person is saying when you're interviewing them, but you can prescribe. So in anthropology, it's describe, don't prescribe. So keep yourself and your opinion out of it while the thing is happening. Try to be invisible. Whereas social work, either I still have to use all of my uh, interviewing skills and all of my ability to 
pay attention to what's going on, but then I'm allowed to kind of jump in. So it ma and, but to answer your question, no, I did not have the masters in mind at that point. Got it. Yeah, I think, I mean, in some ways, I think the fact that it is an anthropological thesis about the library is what makes it so interesting to me. Because I think many, because you're actually sharing your experience and, and being in the library and what that was like and describing that one librarian who your friend said was kind to the books. Um, yeah. And I love that idea. And I, I, I think I know who that librarian is too. Um, but there is yep. this, participant quality and you get to feel a lot more of what your experience is like being in the library and as a reader I'm able to think about my experience in the library which to me is much more fascinating than just some very distant academic treatise that is like this happened in this date and this happened on that date which is you know it's a cool thing to know but it feels more like trivia and this feels like more something that actually raises questions that one wants to consider, like, what is the role of the library now? Exactly. So, yeah, I, I was striving for a sort of like a slightly memoir-like quality, and one of my, if you're allowed to pick, uh, you need two anthropologic advisors, I had those in place, but then you're supposed to have a third advisor who's outside of your field, and I chose um, a man who's a poet and a professor of literature, because I wanted his comments on how to make the thing readable. I wanted it to be a document that I could be proud of. And he was, he was wonderful. So they kind of went in order. He was the lower of the three, but I couldn't have done it without him in a certain way because he understood that I want this thing to be able to, I want to be able to give it to anybody and for them to feel my ethos, I guess, as a writer. So I hope that worked. I, I think it did because, I mean, it's enjoyable to read. And again, I call back, we'll put a link to it. You can just download it and read it wherever you want um, from the Pitzer site, which is a nice thing that you can read all these pieces. Um, if you want to dive into academic papers, um, they're, they're all posted <laughs> online so you can find subjects. But I think the other thing that you, you sent a link to, which I thought was totally fascinating in terms of the concept of not just the individual books in the library, but the concept, which we touched on briefly earlier, about how it is when books come together, was the, the way that they've archived Donald Judd's library, um, that it's not just, you know, this is a list of the books that are there, or you can check out these books somewhere else, but maybe you can say, oh, you're going to describe it better, but the way that they chose to archive this library. Yeah, so I, a couple of years ago, I had been in New York City with my husband, and we went straight to Donald Judd's beautiful five-story Soho house that's perfectly preserved, and it's very hard to get tickets, and it was this incredible experience, and it brought up a lot of feelings of envy and greed, because the place is just incredible. It's very sparse, like his, his sculptures, and he did have a small corner library there, and it just you kind of walk out of there in a dream. Well, he also had a space in Marfa, Texas, uh, quite a, a large number of spaces, actually. So we went there um, two months ago, and we were able to tour his library, and it is a staggering place to walk in. It's like a warehouse, and it's organized just incredibly. And one of, he's no longer alive, but one of his ideas for, for his um, 
or his long-term um, collections was that they shouldn't be touched. So if you put something somewhere, that's where it's supposed to be. And I've heard that, I'm sure you've heard that from other, other families too, that you walk into a space and it's exactly the way they left it, which is pretty fabulous. So we, I walked in and I was a little bit weak in the knees looking at all these books and they're organized like it'll say Icelandic saga literature or, you know, on yes. the other aisle it'll be a, just a little, yeah, a little uh, group of like six things about, um, ferns or something. And so it's very deep, but it's also kind of loose so that it's okay that there's five things in a section. So it's not like a, typical academic library where things are just wedged in. It's very full, but um, like little sculptures. So there's five things, and one of them's on its side. That's fine, too. And maybe 30 minutes in to the tour, the tour guide mentioned that it had taken years, but they had archived every single book with its title and publishing information. So sure enough, you can go onto the website, which I'm sure you'll have available, and you can click on any section of the library, and the incredible list of each item will turn up. So I remember seeing this book, it's by Smith, and it's a history of mathematics, and my father had it. And I always loved that book, and I thought it was a fabulous book. But I've never seen it again since my father's no longer alive. So I saw it that Donald Judd had it, and I was a little bit panicked, must remember Smith. I mean, that's... That's pretty bad if that's what you're thinking, but that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> I haven't seen this paperback book in 25 years, but and I think it's actually a volume of two. So that's when the tour guide sets are all available. So all of a sudden I went from a greedy, envious, uh, kind of like tragic uh, person missing out on this full, incredible, vast piece of information because I couldn't, I, I was panicking, I couldn't. Uh, remember every single thing that I was seeing to totally relaxed and happy and trusting this incredible archive that is available from any uh, computer. It's just, it just struck me as the most incredible transition between what he wanted with his actual collection and where we're at today and how those two things can dovetail beautifully because it took a very well financed and um, earnest group of people who work for the Judd Foundation, but also because um, of something else I just read just this morning. I was looking at the world of interiors from April, and there's this great quote in there. It's by a guy from a London bookstore who says, books are great survivors. They tend to go where they're wanted. Mm. And it, it, struck me, it struck me that that is where we want things to go. We want things to be available. Even, I mean, the books themselves in Judd's library aren't scanned. It's just the publishing information. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then there's a link to the WorldCat library so that you can find out if someone had it near you. It's pretty fabulous. And I love that notion that somehow the book is going to end up, it's going to outlive us and it's going to end up being available to exponential amounts of people. That's so great. I think that link is crucial that people can then find it if they want to read it. But I think you're so right that whenever I'm in experience anywhere where I feel like I'm the information is going to slip through my fingers because we are, you know, not the kind of memorizers that people who didn't have all of this information available 
that I'm sure that Churchill could remember like a long string of books that somebody rattled off in conversation. Yeah. But I compulsively carry a traveler's notebook and have to write down every single thing that someone says to me so I don't forget it. But um, but there's right. nothing more um, soothing to me than someone saying like, this will be in the handout or don't worry, I'm going to oh. provide you with notes or it will be in the show notes or other such hits that are like, oh, God, I don't need to remember every single thing you're saying. I can just kind of take it in and be present. Um, yeah. That's such a gift yeah. to them because you're obviously not going to be able to sit in the Donald Judd Library all day and peruse these books because you can't even touch them. But You can't even touch them, right. He's put this stamp on it that says this: these books are important. I'm saying that these books are important, and that's why they're here. Yes. That's exactly right. And it's and so it's a real feeling of trust. And that's the, the the best thing about growing up around books or being able to go to a public library is that I trust that that institution is going to stay put. The hours may change. Uh, there may be days when they're closed, like they are in Detroit, and they were a little bit in Los Angeles for a bit. They were closed on Sundays to save money. But I trust that it's there. But why does it have to be? I mean, it could, it could we contribute our funds towards it, and therefore that could go away. And having this trust in the possibilities of archiving things online has allowed me to relax a little bit <laughs> in that realm. I suppose so, but there is, like, it just brings up an immediate panic. As soon as you say it could go away, I'm like, no! Um, because <laughs> to me, they're almost like a... I don't even want to open this can of worms, but on one, I'll just briefly say, like, as a not terribly or really not religious person, there, you know, people go into buildings to commune with the thing that is most important to them. And so in many ways, my most important thing is a library or, you know, a bookstore to some extent as well. Of Books are important. Literature is important. It's like the best, the cheapest vacation you can take is to read a good book and, and to to know that we as a society find it important and that there are buildings everywhere that say, yes, we still think it's important is tremendously validating to me. So I think we should keep them. I say we keep them. Yep. <laughs> it's good we've solved this today, that we should keep the library I'm system. I'm so glad we keep them. Right. So in your, your books at your home, do you keep them in sections? How do you organize them? Well, we, we it's, it's funny that you ask because we went through a phase um, – because seeing as I live with a fellow book-obsessed creature, um, we ha both came into this relationship with tremendously large book collections. Because we right. both lived alone for many years. Um, and, and our compulsive book buyers and bookstore hangouters and all that. So the first thing that we did in terms of our library culling was to look at duplicates. And to kind of look at, you know, giving the... Um, either donating or selling the duplicates to a used bookstore. So we did that, which cleared out some stuff. And then, you know, we kept the one that was in better shape or the one that whoever screamed loudest that it was incredibly sentimental to them. Um, <laughs> so then, so That's then we, a really tender thing. Yeah. yeah, so we did our book combining was a, a very conscious process. And then what we did was we sort of looked at the bookshelves that we have in the house, and it was sort of a size of location issue as well as uh, location of use issue. So like in our office, all of my writing reference books and dictionaries and 
foreign language books are in there, and many of his art and design books are there because he's a designer and, and needs to reference them when he's working. So that was that defined those go in the office. And then we have kind of the woo-woo, I'm looking at it right now, the woo-woo memoir spiritual and money section in the bedroom <laughs> just because they were all kind of small. Um, cookbooks are obviously in the kitchen, and then we have uh, non, just generalized nonfiction that's non-memoir and biography is downstairs in the living room. And then we have fiction and poetry upstairs in kind of our sitting room. And then we have these little piles all over the house, which we've entitled the oops section, because I think we <laughs> sort of thought that once we had this beautiful system and all of them fit, that we would somehow stop buying books, which was totally absurd <laughs> and, and patently impossible. So there right. are, I mean, you can't see this because it's a podcast, but I'm looking like my dresser has conservatively 30 books on top of it. There's a pile on top of this chest. He's probably got 15 to 20 on his side of the bed. I've got at least the same. And then I have a little meditation nook that has a whole growing stack there. And then on any surface in the house that's like not an eating or cooking utilitarian surface, there are, there are books. They're just everywhere. Ditto. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's incredible. I, I buy books and I'm holding them, walking through a register and I'm actually saying to myself, this is madness. <laughs> I, I could read a new sentence, you know, I, I have so many books that I've never, we're not even talking about rereading books that I love, but I have so many on deck. And, um, it's, it's incredible. So sometimes they leapfrog over because it just becomes more attractive. And so I really just look at it like a little to-do list. Um, and it's just sitting there and they're just waiting when I, you know, leave, when I come back, they're still there. It's kind of great. But yeah. Our space definitely does define how our collections. Yeah, I think we, um, I think it's just how much we're willing to look like hoarders and how many more bookshelves we're willing to buy. <laughs> we just had to upgrade one of the ones in the office to a larger shelf. Um, and then we started putting books in the, uh, Barry's daughter's room without her consent. I mean, she's, she knows it's happening, but, um, but we're like, oh, we'll put it in Lauren's room. You know, that's cool. There's space. We could just put it in there. Um, but it is, it's, it's, I, I would say it's yeah. a personal library <laughs> built as much by compulsion as, as, um, curation. And, uh, I think, right. no, yeah, I, it just, I it just keeps that. happening. Yeah. Right. Like, I gotta read it's like, it. It's, like, it's not like we can buy 50 a year, we make a list. No, it's, it's totally, it's like the Wild West. We're just, you do whatever you want, you buy whatever you want, and then find a home later. It's so excellent. It's really luxurious. Oh, absolutely. And there are things that where we're just like, we almost, it's like we're buying against our will. Like one of us will pick up a book and say, <laughs> oh God, honey, it's got a map in the overleaf. And we're like, oh shit, we're going to have to buy it. Because we really like books with maps in them. There's something about it. It's either a really legit biography or nonfiction, or it's going to have some whole world in it. And, and we're like, we got yeah. to have it. Oh yeah, I've, I've purchased that at um that great book about all the smallest islands in the world, all the most remote islands, and then they came out with a smaller size of it. So, I mean, it changes everything. So now I have both of them, and I love them. <laughs> not a mistake. Not a mistake. Well, I think Marie Kondo would be okay with us having all of these books <laughs> because they do clearly spark joy. And when, I mean, my aunt and I had this extended conversation actually about compulsive book buying and collecting, and that 
we find that there are two types of books in a way that you, you don't read right away. There are books that are like fruit, and then there are books that are like wine. And the books that are like fruit go bad. And you're just like, oh, I bought that and I didn't get to it. And now that topic is just, it's no longer of interest or I, I don't know what I was thinking. I was nuts. Or, but then there's the wine books where it's like you start it, you're like, mm, not yet. And then a couple years later, you read it, you're like, perfect. It's been waiting all this time. Oh, I totally agree. I just did that with Rebecca Solnit's, uh, the book about, about wandering and, and space and time and traveling. And I just, um, it was the perfect time to read it and I've had it for two years. The walking one? Um, it's called, I don't have it right in front of me. I'm embarrassed to say. Oh, is it yeah, the field guide to getting yeah. lost? Yes. Ooh, Thank so you. good. Yeah, so I know, good. and I knew it was good. I actually, I flung it to the ground as soon as I started it because I knew it was so good that I had to savor it. And so um, I also have done that with the Alexandria Quartet. I read Justine, and then I, I flung the other three down because <laughs> I, I'm not there. I can't. I, I want to know that those are out there still. It's like seeing hearing that there's five more Thin Man movies. You just be like, I, I'm not ready. I don't want to see those yet. I just want to live knowing that they exist. So that's how I feel about um, the Alexandria Quartet, which our, our friend Tracy gave me those. And they're so good that I can't keep reading them. So that's a whole different <laughs> that <laughs> It's like for a rainy yeah. day when I need Heavily something really special. Fantasy books. Oh, totally. Oh, well, this is so great, and I know um, we'll need to keep talking about this topic because the library is going to keep changing. And um, so I'm so glad that you were able to be here with us and, and talk about this topic, and it's just been such a delight to talk to you. I had such a good time talking to you. I, I lost you briefly, but now we're back. Um, I love your podcast. I think you're doing great work. I look forward to Listening to all of your future guests, which I'm sure will be enlightening and fabulous for, for all of us. Thank you so much, and I'm so glad you were able to be here, and I'm sure we'll have you back because some crazy thing will happen with the library, and or, you know, maybe I have uh, compulsively collected so many books that I can't get out the front door, and we'll just have to communicate yeah. by podcast. Sounds great. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast, where we're going deep inside the world of books. You can listen to all episodes on iTunes. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes can be found online at secretlibrarypodcast.com. To stay up to date and hear about future episodes, please subscribe to Footnotes, my newsletter, on the site. You can also find out about coaching with me, Caroline, and get book prescriptions and other goodies at carolinedonahue.com. If you've enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and leave a review on iTunes. Thank you so much, and until next week, happy reading. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash adfreefitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.